Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Under hypnosis, certain elements of the human mind function much better, like memory, your ability to, to memorize a poem, for example, would be much higher than in a different state, like being awake. Close your eyes, breathe in and out. Feel yourself drifting deeper and deeper into the nutty realm of one of Europe's weirdest, wildest filmmakers. I had one test done with uh, 25 or so potential actors for the film who were under hypnosis, but so deep under hypnosis that they would open their eyes without waking up. Werner Herzog. I suggested to them that they were uh, the most incredible inventor and they had invented a machinery that was so extraordinary that nobody before had ever thought of inventing such a thing. And I said, I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder, you will open your eyes, and you will describe this machine. And there was such unbelievable inventions. I told them, you are on a, on a strange jungle island, never seen before, for, for hundreds of years no people have been there. And there was a holy monk on this island who had lived there all his life as the last one. And there's a huge mile-wide cliff, all of emerald. And all his life this monk spent with a chisel and a hammer to inscribe one poem into this huge cliff of emerald. And I said, you are discovering this place and you will... Feel yourself moving away from Werner as he speaks. I'm going to count down from five. When I get to zero, you will open your eyes and you'll find yourself in the latest episode of the BFI podcast. Out of, let's say, a hundred persons who are willing to be hypnotized from the screen, I would say only 20% might be hypnotized, not more. Five. Edging away from Werner now as he talks about hypnotizing people via cinema screen. I started to read with a very strange voice, uh, why can't we drink the moon? Why is there no vessel to hold it? Four. Moving away faster. You can even hypnotize somebody over the telephone, I think. Three. Really moving quite quickly away from Werner now. Two. 
nearly home, one, zero. Phew, welcome back to the BFI podcast, an audio adventure through the archives of the British Film Institute. I'm Henry Barnes. This episode, to celebrate the Rainer Werner Fassbinder season currently playing at London's BFI Southbank, we'll be spinning clips from previously unbroadcast interviews with four of Fassbinder's contemporaries from the new German cinema movement. Volker Schlerndorf, Helmer Sanders Brahms, Wim Wenders, and of course, Werner Herzog. But first, a quick primer on the new German cinema, courtesy of Erika Carter, Professor of German at King's College London. Germany, and particularly West Germany, is a country whose history is often told much more in lots of ways than, than other European countries in terms of generations, because um, a lot of the, the politics of a, a reckoning or a mastering or a coming to terms with fascism are played out in relation to family politics, really. And you know, the question, <laughs> what, what are you doing in the war, um, takes on a particular colouring in the, in the context of national socialism, as does the silence around kind of responses to that question. German film flourished economically during World War II, but was severely ideologically compromised. The Nazis co-opted the industry for propaganda after their rise to power and forced some of its brightest talents, filmmakers like Fritz Lang, Douglas Sirk and Billy Wilder, to flee. After the war, when Germany was divided, the Allied occupation forces assumed control of West German film. The Allies saw opportunities to use film to aid denazification, as well as build a commercial industry. Later, the West German government would introduce a scheme of censorship and state grants ostensibly designed to foster films of quality. In fact, the state tended to favour films that exhibited conservative traditional values. As a result, German film came to the end of the 1950s, often looking cheap, stuffy and dull. Here's film historian Thomas Esseizar's description of West German cinema at the time in an excerpt from his essay, The Post-War German Cinema, published in a BFI booklet in 1976. The tendency to remain something of a Bavarian cottage industry is reflected in the themes and genres. Films about gynaecologists getting their patients pregnant, neo-imperialists dreaming of V&S pastry and Habsburg glories, the Bavarian mountain musicals, the beer mug and lederhosen comedies. In response, two film movements established themselves. The first is in the early 1960s, um, in the wake of the Oberhausen Manifesto, when a group of filmmakers um, started to despair of the state of um, West German cinema. The Oberhausen Manifesto talks about dispensing with what's famously called Papa's Kino, so um, father's, father's cinema of fathers and grandfathers is dead, um, and that. That motivation was partly artistic, it was partly about creating a different funding base, but it was also political, um, because along with that commitment to genre cinema was seen to go um, a, a kind of cultural and political conservatism. And then there's a second generation to whom Fassbinder belong, who pick up that legacy and benefit actually from the better funding and I suppose cultural conditions that, uh, that were created in the wake of the manifesto. Among that new wave of West German filmmakers were directors like Herzog, Wenders, Sanders Brahms and Schlerndorf. Like Fassbinder, they were young, rebellious and experimental. They wanted to provoke and were terrified of boring the audience. But, says Erika Carter, beyond the joint desire for a shake-up, 
there wasn't much that bound this brood. I'm not sure whether one, one can think of it thematically. I, I think it, you might want to think about it more as a, a sensibility that's informed by a search for a new artistic language. History lesson over, let's get to our quartet. First up, Finn Vendors. At a certain age, I think every young man wakes up somehow. And I woke up when I heard rock and roll. This is Vim Vendors talking in 1994 at the BFI South Bank, then the National Film Theatre, to Adrian Wooten, who now heads Film London. I probably had turned into somebody else if it wasn't for Dylan or the Kinks or Ben Morrison. It woke up something in me and then I realised it made me get in touch with what I was able to do. Vendors was born in 1945, a few months after Germany surrendered to the Allies. Later, his feature films would show an intensely American influence. In fact, he made an American genre, the road movie, his own. Paris, Texas, in which Harry Dean Stanton's Amnesiac makes an odyssey out of searching for his wife across the American Southwest, has become a standout film in the genre. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1984. For the first time, he wished he were far away. Lost in a deep, vast country where nobody knew him. Somewhere without language or streets. And he dreamed about this place without knowing its name. And when he woke up, he was on fire. There were blue flames burning the sheets of his bed. He ran through the flames toward the only two people he loved. But they were gone. Vendors' other biggie is Wings of Desire, in which angels flitting around Berlin eavesdrop on the humans below. It is, like much of Herzog's work, romantic and bizarre, unconstrained and happy to drift between the real and the fictional. In a late scene, the angel Damiel hooks up with Marion, a trapeze artist he's been pursuing all film long, at a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds concert. Lou Reed pops up in the sequel, 1993's Far Away So Close, but he's far from that film's most spectacular cameo. Vendors somehow managed to persuade Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president of the Soviet Union, to put in a turn. In the film, Gorbachev sits at his desk and muses on the world. Otto Sander, playing the angel Cassiel, places a hand on his shoulder. We were waiting in this hotel room that we had sort of made, made up. The lights were set up, and my crew really they are making fun of me. And especially Otto was really cocky and, and really didn't believe for a second that Gorbachev was going to come. <laughs> and then he came into the door with just his assistant and another person, no bodyguards, nothing. It was just three guys walking into, <laughs> into the door and ought to faint it. <laughs> we had to redo his makeup twice in those precious two and a half hours we had, we wasted most of our time doing his makeup because he sweated so much 
that it was just run dripping off on him. And he trembled. He just couldn't cope with it. <laughs> Do you really want me to put my arm around his shoulder? Gorbachev <laughs> <laughs> was very cool. Wenders has throughout his career dabbled with futurology. Until the end of the world is another road movie, except with a nuclear satellite spinning out of control, we're heading for a breakdown. Vendors explores the concepts of smartphones, GPS and virtual reality technology in a film released in 1991. He was prescient too about another modern obsession, screen time. Do you still think a saturated visual image culture is dangerous? Well, I mean time passes and we're no longer, no longer talking saturated, we're talking overdose. Mm. In a few years we'll remember 1994 how naive we were talking overdose. Because I don't think we can imagine what, we, what visual culture we live with in the year 2000. I mean, till the end of the world, tried to mm -hmm. somehow imagine it. But already now, four or five years later, it looks obsolete. The film is still, and the movie theater is still quite a privileged place. And being exposed to a movie, be whatever movie it is, I mean, even the worst movie, is still exposing yourself to one voice and one world, so to speak, and one language for a while, for two hours or whatever it takes. So, in a way, it's almost like a refuge, I think, mm -hmm. movies today. And the overdose starts once you walk out of the door again. Next up, Volker Schlerndorf. In the new German cinema in, in the 60s and the 68 and everything that was going on, it was just a, a generation on the move and it happened in the fields of politics and in the field of films. And so, of course, at some moment, uh, these, uh, they joined and it, it really was sort of a cultural revolution, even though it, uh, it, 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 today it seems very far away. That's Schlerndorf speaking at the BFI South Bank, then the National Film Theatre, in 1995. The rest of the society was so conformist and so, so timid, especially television and the press and everybody seemed to be, you know, totally conformist. So filmmaking was all of a sudden, you know, the only free field where you could articulate things and uh, without you know wanting or knowing all of a sudden we were we were like the spokesman uh, of of another generation schlerndorf was born in 1939 when he was 15 his dad a doctor just like vin vendors's sent him to france to expand his horizons past the film industry the art form schlerndorf had already set his heart on i was uh, 15 16 years old and i was fascinated with with films and uh, there was not much going on in Germany. I didn't want to go on to school but to become a cameraman. And my father thought it wise to send me for, to, for three months to France uh, to get other ideas into my mind and to learn French. And I ended up at a Jesuit uh, boarding school in Brittany. And the first guy I met was an old uh, Père Jesuit uh, uh, who uh, who was an absolute film buff and had a film club and showed us 
whatever, John Dark, and, but many other films, the early Fellini films, and so my father's plan went totally wrong, and instead of going home after these three months, I did stay on for about 10 years in France, finishing school there and then moving on to Paris, where Bertrand Tavernier was sitting next to me on the same bench uh, when we did our classes at uh, Lycée Henri IV. Schlendorf's big film was The Tin Drum, winner of the Palme d'Or in 1979 and the Best Foreign Language Oscar the February after. Based on the book by Gunter Grass, it's a wild roaming fantasy set in Nazi Germany and featuring a man who, determined pan-like never to grow up, wills himself to remain a prepubescent boy. Everything fell into place with the tin drum. I don't say it was effortless, but it was, it was not so very... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Very hard, you know. And the, but the greatest moment was <clears throat> as we started to work on the screenplay, Jean-Claude Carrier and I... I said, look, we really have to think about, I mean, how can we cast this character? And we went to uh, conventions of, uh, uh, well, I would say dwarfs, but they call themselves people of small size. Or, uh, and we looked at them, and they were all charming and interesting. And I met all the circus clowns in Europe that are around, you know, small ones, uh, Circo Orfe near Rome, and Zarazani uh, uh, in Berlin, and whatnot uh, in Paris. And I always said, we, we can't make a movie with one of one of these guys, you know. And and this and and then. Uh, I think it was with Bertrand over lunch we were going through this and 
and in a rage I said, yeah, but look, uh, yeah, no, he said, why are you doing this? How many people in the audience can identify with a dwarf? I mean, what an audience will that make if all the dwarfs in the world come to see your movie? And, uh, and I said, but it's not a dwarf. It's a three-year-old child who refuses to grow, and aren't we all, you know, somehow three-year-old childs? And he said, well, why don't you take a child then? S somewhere along this line. Um, anyhow, all of a sudden the idea was there. Casting a kid in a grown-up role inevitably led to controversy. The film includes scenes of the then 11-year-old actor David Bennell in bed snorting fake cocaine out of a young woman's belly button. Then there were the scenes set during a Nazi rally, a staging that few German directors had felt comfortable with up to that point. Schlendorf himself admitted it was tricky ground for a German director to cover. I was not afraid of the Nazi rally, but literally, like when people mm. say Schindler's List, isn't it a shame, shouldn't have, you know, of course we wonder, shouldn't one of us have done it? And I say, well, simply we couldn't. And, uh, and I think it's quite right uh, that it's for the, uh, uh, the, the sons of the victims uh, to tell this story and, uh, and not to, uh, to the other side. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think there, there is a good reason why none of us um, so far could, could have done it. Third of our four, Helmus Sanders Brahms. When I was 10 years old, I got the idea that making a film must be the thing that really I would care for more than for everything in the world. Uh, but uh, in 1967, um, there was a man who said, you must make films. And um, it was something like a queen or a king putting you know, the, the sword on your head and telling you, you must go. And uh, this man was Pasolini. This is Sanders Brahms talking to Helen McIntosh at the BFI South Bank, then the National Film Theatre in 1982. 67 was when Pasolini shot Medea. And you remember Medea that was with um, this famous singer, Maria Callas. And um, the very moment when I entered for the first time the setting of, of, this, uh, um, of this man, Pasolini, directing that, I thought this is the most beautiful thing a man or a woman can do. You must imagine, um, it was uh, 50 kilometers from Rome, it was the beach, it was the Mediterranean Sea, it was the sun uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, it was four men naked on horseback that dashed into the Mediterranean Sea and with that sun and with that splash of water and it was a very shy man behind all that saying, let's do that again. She was part of a wave of female directors who found a place in the West German scene thanks partly to funding from TV. West Germany's telly had regional bases that commissioned films for the two national TV channels and a third channel that was reserved for local filmmaking. This system allowed a greater range of artists to get their work seen. Sanders Brahms's film Germany, Pale Mother, released in 1979, was an international art house hit. It drew heavily on her recollections of growing up with her mother in war-torn Germany. There's Fassbinder and there's Schlöndorf and there is Herzog or someone making big films or making tiny films, I don't know. 
And uh, for me, you know, I'm inside this uh, whole German mm, bubbling uh, kettle, you know, full of uh, energies of all kinds. This is Sanders Brahms on how she saw herself in the industry. I'm in this uh, sort of uh, soup that is boiling on the on the on the on the fireplace, and I don't know where where you know. I just try to to find my own way. The new German cinema might have offered women more opportunities to get their work seen, but it was far from a utopia for female directors. You must know one thing, um, a man has always another person, a woman, backing him. But a woman, when she tries to make what I'm doing, has always to fight with the man she is with. So that making films always meant for me fighting against the men that I was living with. Making a film always meant to be, to be fighting against the love that I had for a man and it was always a decision for for this work of art against against my life in a way um, this is this is really sort of a terrifying thing that uh, men don't know in that way because they are making something and uh, the women the woman uh, who is with them will will help them and will push them Bullshit. forward just in case you didn't catch that, a male audience member yelled bullshit as she was talking. Is that bullshit? So, so you, you, you have, you have uh, another experience? I've always believed the reverse to be the case, he says. I mean, I, I thought it would be like that. Talking in stereotypes anyway. Talking about our experience. Okay. The playing field was never level, but Sanders Brahms was ultimately wrangling with the same problem as her male contemporaries. How to make cinema that could entertain, fascinate and sway an audience that had been numbed by simple genre storytelling for years. I don't think film, as I interpret it, should, could really solve the problems of society. It is... Uh, it couldn't solve the problems of the women, it cannot solve the problems of the men. Uh, if it pretends to solve them, it is the lie cinema. Um, it can only, I mean, it can only give us this feeling of getting older together and learning together and being together. And finally, back to Herzog. I'm one of those who does not dream at night. The psychology uh, is is just uh, is just a scandal. The whole the whole profession, the whole discipline is a scandal. And and these bastards maintain that every person dreams so and so much time during the night and I am the living proof that it is not the, that, that it is not like that I do not dream I, I really don't dream I, I do I do so maybe once a year or so this is Werner Herzog talking to Norman Neal at the then National Film Theatre in 1988 and it's very prosaic I, my last dream was that I had a sandwich <laughs> for lunch so, but, and, and, and maybe, sorry, I, I want to add something serious, but it's true, I mean, I, ha I had a sandwich for lunch, but maybe because when I wake up in the morning, I, I have a deficit, 
like some people who do not sleep long enough, they, you sense it. You have not, today for example, I have a, an enormous deficit of sleep. I haven't slept very well the last nights and I had to drink a lot of vodka last night until I f fell out of my shoes. <laughs> but when I wake up in the morning, I have the feeling there is a deficit of dreaming. Again, God damn it, again, why haven't I dreamt? And maybe, maybe that pushes me a little bit into making films. The best known of the new German cinema crowd, Herzog's career has incorporated stints as a writer, director, actor, poet and sort of performance artist. In the course of his filmmaking he's been shot, faced a riot of Amazonian women on set and famously hauled a 320 ton steamship over a mountain during the filming of Fitzcarraldo. He's as happy mooning over the cave paintings of Chavot as he is facing off against Tom Cruise as the baddie in Jack Reacher. He's probably the filmmaker who best channels the spirit of Fassbinder, an artist who wants his films watched, a salesman who knows his art. Oh, and he's got no problem speaking his mind either. Here he is being mean about his long-term collaborator Klaus Kinski, who appeared as the lead in Herzog's films Cobra Verde, Fitzcarraldo, Aguirre Wrath of God and his Nosferatu remake. He will age very badly, in my opinion. He will take a bad end. I, I hate to see that. I hate to see it. Uh, because I, uh, I still think that he is some sort of a miracle of the world. In the cinema, there is no one around who has his presence and his intensity on screen uh, and his force on screen. Uh, yet, I would say the best thing for him, I, I, don't, I really don't wish him anything bad, but I only wish him to die quickly. <laughs> because, uh, because in that case, you would, you, would not see, you would not see his ugly aging. It's the same, I, I, I saw Chaplin when he was 80 years old and, and pushed out to, to the audience in Cannes at the film festival and it was a horrifying experience. And I, I wish Chaplin had died 10 years before that. So I wish I had never seen that. And here he is being mean about David Bowie, who tried to outbid him for the rights to Cobra Verde. Apparently Bowie wanted to, to act and direct the movie. And his agents were the ruthless gangsters who, who never spoke about a novel. They always speak about the property, as they do in, in Hollywood. I had the feeling... I have to buy it away from them as quickly as possible because not a person like Bowie should do it. He, he's, he's not such a good singer anyway, and he's a bad actor. Uh, and and, and, and as, a, as a figure, I mean, how can he play Cobra Verde? How can he do that? He's, he's a neon light bulb. He has the radiation of a neon light, and that's all. And about that boat. We started to, to talk about the so-called plastic solution, a plastic miniature boat over a plastic hill in the studios. And I always argued against the plastic solution because, number one, I knew pulling a boat of that monstrous size over a mountain would um, create um, situations that nobody had foreseen that brought real life into a film, that you cannot, cannot even invent things going, for example, the sound of the boat. Unfortunately, it was not shot in Dolby stereo. The sound of this boat, of this uh, enormous 340 or so tons hull 
was so was so stunning and so amazing no sound engineer could ever have invented that or, or many many details came that there was real life into the film and I, I expected that and I knew that and it came into it mm. and the second and more important thing is uh, when I sit in the theater uh, as a spectator I, I expect and I demand from cinema certain things uh, for example in a western I, I demand to have some sort of reassertion of my basic sense of justice in other films I demand from, from the movies a position or, or some sort of, of being taken seriously as a spectator I want to be in a position like the early moviegoers who, who, who still could trust their own eyes and I've seen people in a small village in Mexico 20 years ago who kept talking back to the bad guy on the scene in an open-air theater and one pulled a gun and opened fire at him <laughs> so, and, and I, liked, I liked that very much Every story is physical with Herzog there is nothing plastic about him he epitomizes the goal of his generation to pull German cinema out of a rut and haul it back up the mountain. That generation have never really stopped pulling for German film. At their best, the new German cinema directors are still blindsiding their audiences, still calling for a cinema that yanks us all out of the everyday and into worlds that are strange and new. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the BFI podcast, which was written, presented, produced and edited by me, Henry Barnes. You can find out all you'll ever need to know about me by going to Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes. Additional production and a lovely reading of the excerpt from Thomas Alcias' essay was provided by Peter Sale. More information on Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. The BFI's Fassbinder season continues to run at the BFI South Bank throughout April and May. Go to bfi.org.uk for details of events and to buy tickets. Thanks to Professor Erica Carter of King's College London for her contribution. Special thanks to Sarah Curran at the BFI's library team for digging up the clips and to Peter Stanley who transferred them from these weird plastic boxes with reels, I think they're called tapes, onto a digital format. Lastly, the BFI's 1976 handbook on Fassbinder, edited by Tony Raines, was invaluable reading for this podcast. If anyone wants my copy now I'm done with it, get in touch. The BFI podcast will be back again in a few weeks. Thanks very much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.